Good morning. Did you like that song? That was excellent. Thank you, Hayward, picking that out. And did you watch those kids singing? We were sitting right there. Some of the, most of those little guys were just singing from the, their souls. I, that was just awesome. Moms and dads, thank you. You're, keep working hard at it. Grandparents as well. I know you're involved as well. Um, pour into them. And uh, we, we, we can't raise them for you, but we'd love to come alongside you and help you. And, and uh, that's really encouraging. Well, well, let's pray, and then we're going to get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 through 4. Father, thank you uh, for a time of worship. It is because of Christ. We, none of us would be here. None of us have any standing. We have no hope. We have nothing of any value, Lord. It would all perish. Because of Christ, we have hope. We have eternal reward with a hope of never separation from our Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, we praise you for that, Lord. What a great reminder in our music today. We thank you for our children, Lord. What a joy to see so many voices up there. Lord, I pray you continue to reach their hearts, give their moms and dads deep love for Christ. Lord, I thank you for them. Lord, now we want to turn to your word. And we think of those who can't physically be here, and we ask that you would bless them and strengthen them. Many will tune in today, Lord, and help them know that we love them and care for them. Pray for those who are going through procedures, some who are having a hard time, Lord. Be their rock, be their anchor. Cause them to cling to you. Thank you for our missionaries. Thank you that some have come through recently. Pray you just strengthen them. Continue to give them uh, freedom to preach. Give them favor in their cities and countries. Lord, may we continue to add to our numbers of those we walk with, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever run into somebody you haven't seen for a while, and then you pick up on what's happening spiritually in their life. Sometimes it's very discouraging. You Maybe you was raised with somebody in the church, and you meet them years later, and they have abandoned the faith, and that's very discouraging. But then there's times, and this has recently happened to me and several times, um, where you run into somebody that you haven't seen for a long time, and you get talking with them, and they're in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're in a good church. They're, they're loving the Word, and, and they're ready to share that with you. It's such an encouragement, isn't it? I went to school, uh, grade school and high school with uh, one of my best buddies. We played basketball and baseball together, and then we ended up going off to colleges, uh, rival colleges to play ball. And, uh, and then I left and went to Bible school, and that's another story. But I, I lost contact with him. I'd only heard from his parents that he had fallen into deep sin and abandoned the faith and had left and got into all kinds of things in the world. And then, oh, just a few years ago, I ran into him, and uh, he called me and said, Scott, I've got to meet with you. And I said, man, where have you been? And he goes, oh, it's a long story. And he told me the story of how he had fallen away and how he never was saved. And uh, he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and during a time of recovery, because he had got involved with a lot of things in the world, he went on a missions trip and met a girl in Indonesia and married her, and, and now they're both in ministry, and just a tre- tremendous story. What, what an encouragement was to hear of that. Well, that's what this is happening in this letter. Paul had been gone from the Thessalonica church for a little while. He'd visit there. It was a great visit. It was a great start to this church. But he had not heard from them in a while. And now he's hearing back. He's hearing from Timothy. He's hearing from other churches, as we'll see. This church is going after Christ. And it's encouraging his soul so greatly. 
And he is finding so much contentment. Uh, Think about this. (laughs) He's writing this letter to Thessalonica, and he's in Corinth. Oh, (laughs) there's a contrast, right? We just got done in 1 Corinthians. That was not a church that was full of uh, encouragement, let's say that way. It was uh, letters of rebuke and difficulties that were there. But not Thessalonica. This is a church that loved Christ, loved the apostle, loved the men that he ran with. And it was a joy for him to pastor them and care for them. Well, this morning I want to dive in again to what a lot of people think the introduction, but there's so much in here, so much to unpack in these three verses we're going to look at, two, three, and four. And I want to look at just a couple of thoughts here. First, number one, let's, let's look at this. In verse two, Paul's ministry team was marked by thankfulness and prayer. Paul's ministry team was marked by thankfulness and prayer. Look at verse 2 with me as Pastor Rick had read this passage. Um, It says this, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Well, if you have any, if you studied at all in the Pauline epistles, these 13 known epistles that we know that Paul wrote, you will see that he uses constantly these plural pronouns. You will hear we and are and us. He always does that. If you follow Acts, Luke is writing the same way. We call them the we passages. You don't ever hear Luke's name, but Luke's writing, and they always talk about them together. And so here again, we see it. And this is Paul, who is with these men, these trained men like Timothy and Silas, Um, And he's training them to have a heart of prayer, to have a heart of thanksgiving. You can see it in this verse. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in what? Our prayers. He's including in them. In this verse 2, we see that he is speaking on behalf of Silas and Timothy here. Paul was like this father figure with his ministry team. And he speaks like a father. And he has his spiritual sons with him. He even calls Timothy a spiritual son. He has them with him, but they speak together. We love you. We care for you. We think about you. We pray about you. We, we heard over the things you go over. You can feel that fatherly figure, that very pastoral thinking that comes out of him. But more importantly, they're living out <laughs> this feeling, right? This sense of prayer. He says in the latter part of the book, in chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, says, pray without ceasing. And here he's telling them they're praying. And he says, and and, and everything give thanks. And here he's telling them we're giving thanks. And then he says, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus. What an amazing statement. Now notice that little adjective there, always. Well, the structure of the sentence, when you look at the structure, particularly in the Greek, you realize that there's, it speaks of this strong habit that Paul had. And I think Silas and Timothy learned this habit, probably Titus and other men that ran with him. And, and, and I think it's very possible, if you think about this, if you look at this verse, that they daily prayed for each of the churches that they were involved with. Now, now we know of many, many churches, right? And there's, they're, they're scattered all over the place. And then think about all the individuals in that. And he says, we pray for all of you. We. And so I think it's very possible they daily brought their petitions and requests for the Thessalonica church and the other churches. And I think this is a mark of their faithfulness, their faithfulness that turns to thanksgiving. And when you pray more, you're more thankful. The less we pray, the less thankful we are. And so this causes them, as they think about these dear saints, to be very thankful. You'll notice that in the text. And this is just not for select people. You know, sometimes 
it can be true that uh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And we have to be careful of that as pastors. We have to learn that to follow Paul's example here, to pray for all of you. It's something we try to do regularly. But this is a, a prayer that is a, a devotion prayer. He's devoted to them. And the thanksgiving was not just to the Galatian church. See, when you think about this guy, I mean, you just get fascinated. We go back to these letters, who this man was. Paul was not only thankful for the Thessalonica church, but for all of them. And when you go to all of his 13 known epistles, all but two of them, he opens with this. We thank God for you. Guess where the two were? <laughs> Galatians and the Corinth church, his second letter. He doesn't say it. He got right to the point. Those were disciplined letters in a lot of ways, but he got right to the point. But he's praying for all of them. Also notice the, this, and very important here, notice this in the, in the phrase here, who the thanksgiving was given to. Not thanksgiving so much totally for them, but notice we give thanks to God. Now, we can say, and I think it's very proper to say, I'm so thankful for you. But then there's a strength to it. I'm so thankful to you because of what God has done. See, see, always exalt God. There's always a theology proper in his teaching. He's always exalting the Almighty. Even in his thanksgiving and prayer. And when, if you were reading this from your, your apostle Paul who you knew loved you, you go, oh, isn't that so great? But then you look a little closer and he goes, oh, he's taking me, not only praying for me, he's taking me into the presence of God. That's what we should do for each other. We should pray in such a way. Now clearly Paul understood that he, he taught his companions that it was God who was accomplishing the great work of salvation, the great work of sanctification, the great work of perseverance. He, he taught them that. And so he wants them to understand this is what we give thanks for. It was God who saved you. I could not save you. I'm the chief of sinners if it wasn't for him. And so I think Timothy and Silas were constantly getting a lesson with them. Can you imagine as they walked from, say, Philippi to Thessalonica? We talked about that 30-mile break in between uh, certain towns and, of course, maybe walking 15 to 20 miles a day. But those times where they stopped and just prayed, prayed for the believers in those churches, how hard it must have been to leave Philippi knowing that it was a baby church and it was under persecution already because they had been persecuted as they prayed earnestly for him and thanked God that he'd saved a Philippian jailer and a, and a woman of seller of purple and, and so forth. Oh, it isn't hard to imagine the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. Again, they were doing this always. It's so important to see that. And I think Paul trained his leaders to be thankful, thankful prayer warriors. For many um, men, this is sometimes uh, maybe one of our weaknesses. Would you agree, men? We are often men who are raised, at least I was, by a father that said, pull yourself up, let's go. Come on, let's get, let me roll up the sleeves, let's get this done, right? Watch candidates today, they roll their sleeves up because they tell you, I'm busy working for you. But, but prayer is different. Prayer takes humility. It takes bending the knee to God not to our will. It's admitting that we are not adequate for the task. Dads, it's a hard task he's given us. I want to speak to you fathers. You have to provide, protect, lead. Keep your sin in check. Be right with the Lord. 
love your wife as Christ loves the church. If you're not praying, you're going to fail. It's, this is what God calls us to do, men, to be prayer warriors. Admitting, Lord, I cannot do this. <laughs> I don't know how many times it's fallen out of my mouth. Lord, I, am, I, I do not have the ability for this. There's a dependency that comes with this. And this was Paul's attitude. That's why he leaves a list of his inadequacies at times to us. And this is how he trained the Silas's and Timothys of his ministry. Men, the church is in desperate need of Timothys and Silas's. Paul told the church in Colossae to be devoted to prayer. Keeping alert with thanksgiving in chapter 4, verse 2. And that starts with leadership, and leadership starts in the home. And that's where this all happens, right? And so men, let me say this, don't wait. Don't wait for somebody else to lead your family in prayer and thanksgiving. Lead them. That's what God's called you to do. Lead your family. Yeah, your wife might be scared when you start to pray because they haven't heard you do it for so long. But go home today and say, honey, I want to start this. I want to be a man who prays for you and prays for our children. And I, 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 so many of you men, I know many of our young guys in here are just striving. I'm very proud of what God's doing in your life. Um, and continue to do it. But men, sacrifice for them. So that's what the apostle and Timothy and Ty, uh, Silas are teaching us here. They were men who sacrificed. Teach them and lead them in the word. Yes, devotions are wonderful. I, mean, I, I, we, I was raised in the devotional era. It was so pounded in. You have devotions. You eat dinner, you have devotions. You read the daily bread. Anybody there? That, that's what it was in my life. But it just became some kind of ritual. Oh, men, husbands, dads, look for opportunities for that gospel time with them. Yeah, it may be around the table. But it might be out in the backyard. It might be on a walk of sitting down and saying, hey, son, you know the Bible says this. It's so important, men, to do that. I mean, look for those small opportunities. Expose your children to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a conversation about what they just sang. Holy, holy, holy is our God. Teach them what that means. I know we try as a church to come alongside you to do that, but that's our that's our job as dads. And then men, from there, don't wait for someone to tap you on the shoulder to get serving in ministry. I love the statement in Acts chapter 16 that Timothy, before he went with Paul on the second missionary journey, in Acts chapter 16, I think verse 2, it says he was well known, well represented it by Lystra and Iconium. Before the Paul ever got him and took him on the ministry journey, he was already ministering. So when this time of prayer comes and time of thanksgiving and, and thinking of these dear people, they were already in that shepherding mindset. And so men, let me encourage you, don't wait. Once you're consistent in the home, start discipling others. I'm so proud of some of our young men. I get to spend a lot of time with some guys in this church and they are, they are constantly discipling. You know, there's men in our church that go to cafes and coffee places and open their Bibles and boldly preach and teach and sit down and counsel and help and talk about the gospel. A couple of them have been thrown out of a few cafes, but um, and not that they were you know, rude or anything. But I, I, I appreciate that so much. Be, be men that are ready to go. Start Bible studies. Find a public place. Don't be ashamed to pray. The other day I was with a dear friend and we were in a 
cafe having breakfast together and we were just catching up and the conversation just got so gospel-oriented and we were just talking about the Word of God and just richly blessing each other, the things God was taking us through and we were learning. And, you know, unbeknownst, there's people listening around. We're just talking because we're two brothers in the Lord. And, and so this lady gets up and she was, I don't know where she was. She was close enough where she could hear. And she walks over to the table and she goes, I want to comment on some of those things. <laughs> I go, okay, Let's, what do you have to say? And we got into this gospel conversation. She's lost and doesn't know the Lord. Um, but man, we, my, my buddy and I, we just gave her the gospel and prayed for her. It was, it was great. It wasn't more than a few days later. I was with some pastor friends of mine. We were sitting at a, another, well, that's all we do is go out and eat. But we were sitting eating. And we just had a time of prayer, just praying for each other's ministries and so forth. And we had ordered something. Somebody had ordered something to go. And this waitress, she came and and I didn't know she was there, and we, didn't, we were just praying, and, and she stood there. I don't know how long she stood there while we prayed. And she just said, she goes, thank you for that. Used to be a lot of people used to do that. I don't see that as much anymore. I appreciate it. Don't be ashamed to pray in public. Don't be ashamed to have your Bibles out in public. Silas and Timothy were willing to give up a lot to follow Paul in the gospel. Certainly, there's stewardship of the family, men. Take care of your family. There's stewardship there. But don't wait. Go. See what God has for you. Start training people. Start caring for souls. Second, we see the fruit of salvation is the focal point of Paul's thanksgiving and prayer. The fruit of salvation is the focal point of Paul's thanksgiving and prayer. Look at verse 3 with me. Oh, if you know this passage, you love this verse, don't you? constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of our God and Father. Well, Paul's focus, focus point of thanksgiving and prayer was based in remembering the fruit of their salvation. It was evident to all. Notice he uses this phrase, constantly bearing in mind. Literally, the Greek reads this way, incessantly remembering. He was, he said, I incessantly remember what's going on in your life, how Christ and the gospel is infecting you. That's what he's saying. He uses the same words throughout this, chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God. This is a term he enjoys, chapter 5, verse 17. Pray without ceasing. There's the same word in the Greek. This was a constant behavior. I, I, I looked up some extra biblical, sometimes I go off to extra biblical uses of the word because they're interesting. Because we use Bible words, you know, English is English, and we use it in our regular day. This word, this word for constantly that we translate here, um, in ancient letters was used for a cough, a constant cough. And you know what this happened, you know, when you have a cough and someone says, Are you okay? Yeah, I just can't stop coughing. <laughs> so this word is used this way. I can't stop remembering all that you're doing. I can't, I can't stop it. It's, it's involuntarily, right? Is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And that's, I think this is how they prayed and how they remembered this church. What a glorious pastor he was. Now, remember Paul's learning of this fruit, right? Timothy has returned. If you see in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see you. I mean, he's, he's getting an update, isn't he? 
And it isn't just only Timothy. Look at verse 8, drop down, and we'll get to this next week. But notice he says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, Thessalonica, not only in Macedonia or Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth. So we don't have to say anything. <laughs> oh, he says, look, it's incessive. You guys are living for Jesus. You're living for the Lord. And people know it. Uh, that term there, sound forth in verse 8, <laughs> I think that just sums up these fruit that Paul's seeing. It's sounding forth. Fruit in season has a certain taste, doesn't it? <laughs> and you know it, right? And, and that's what Paul's doing. It's sounding forth. We taste it. We see it. We hear it. It's going forth. And this was what driving his thanksgiving. Now, notice he makes three statements here that, listen, I think every one of us, if you're a true believer, this is what we should be striving for. And I think it's what true fr fruit is worthy of thanksgiving. And it, but it has to be gospel-driven, right? When we try to produce things that are not gospel-driven out of um, habit or tradition or whatever, culture or whatever it is, it, it, it isn't worthy of thanksgiving. So he gives us three phrases here that he says he is worthy. Notice in verse 3 here, the first one, works of faith. But you'll see on the outline, I, I said this way, faith that works. Ooh, well, that's a little different, isn't it? And so when we think about faith that works, we think about God-given faith produces God-given works that were prepared in advance, according to Ephesians 2.10, so that you would walk in them. So God-given faith produces God-given works. In other words, saving faith works. Saving faith is not dead. Saving faith is alive. And it's lived out in our daily life. It's lived out in our marriages, our parenting, our jobs, whatever it may be. It's lived out. Works can't produce faith. People try to do it all the time. They try to work their way to God. But it cannot produce saving faith. It, it produces a dead faith. But God gives us a gift. He gives us a gift of faith. And that gift, when it is received and handled and cared for and nurtured, and built upon in the fact that we grow and understand who this God is who gave it to us results in God-glorifying works because of our personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9, just drop down. Uh, we'll get into this again next week. But for they say, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Now look at this. How you turned, there's a word for repentance. We're going to look at this next week. How you turned to God and from idols to serve a living God. So, so it isn't just have a come to Jesus moment. <laughs> it's turning in repentance. God gives you the faith to believe in him. You turn and repent from your sins. You turn and believe. And the result of that is you begin serving this living God. There's where your faith is. And it produces works. Well, Jesus taught this all the time. One of my favorite passages when I think about uh, Jesus teaching on a fruitful life is actually found in the parable of the sower. And it didn't really just read you one verse out of that. One, I just read it this last week and it just struck me again. Matthew 13, 23 says this, and the, and the one whom the seed, that would be the word, was sown on good soil, that would be their heart. Now listen to this. This is the man who hears the word, understands it. So not only is it sown in the heart, but it's also understandable, right? It's just not some emotional thing. It's there's, there's truth and understanding to it. Who indeed, now look what it does, bears fruit and brings forth. Some a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. 
And so Jesus taught this. When that seed of the truth, the word of God, is planted in the heart, it will bear fruit. It's a promise. (laughs) In fact, it's one of the things that gives us assurance, right? We go, man, God's changed my life. It was so fun to talk to my friend Matt. He goes, oh, Scott, man, did I go off the deep end. Sports just grabbed me and dragged me to a place I never thought I would ever go. He said, oh, but God got a hold of me. He wouldn't let me go. And he gave me saving faith, and he's changed my life. And now he's serving the Lord with everything he has. He was an accountant, and now he's an accountant for a ministry, taking care of their finances and just doing a great job. See, it's faith that works. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you what? Yeah. Are you in Jesus? Oh, James jumps all over this. Look at James chapter 2. We've got to look at this passage, right? James chapter 2. Those who teach works righteousness love to try to abuse this text. But now you have a first century church They're going, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus, but they've actually abandoned so many principles of serving God. And so he's trying to bring them back that saving faith changes them and causes them to serve. Notice in chapter 2 of James, verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? I I wrote in my Bible, can dead faith save you? (laughs) No. No. A living faith saves you, and it causes living service. Notice he goes on to say, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one says to him, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for his body, what is the use? Even so, now that's a wild example, and, and lots of people who are not saved give things to homeless people. But notice what he does. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being, listen to this, being by itself. Your your saving faith did not just come like this Jesus moment time. It came with a desire to serve the king of kings. That's what comes with it. It's alive. And that's the difference. And and our culture is teaching a dead faith so often. They won't teach the scriptures. They won't teach verse by verse. They won't hold to the truth. It's, It's all about relevancy. And so people just, well, I got a Jesus that's good. Oh, no. The Bible's full of instruction to help us live for him. So don't wait. Let your faith, let it run. Let it go. Certainly take care of those things. Be a good steward of your life and so forth. But, but ask the question, where is God wanting you to take a step of faith that works? Who do you need to sit down and start a Bible study with? Maybe you need to do that. Start a conversation with someone. You know what's a good way to do this? Write your, write your testimony out. Just I, I, Maybe you've been saved for, I don't know how, 60 years. Sit down and write your testimony out. Just write it out. I'll guarantee you, you'll want to share it with somebody if you write it out. It's amazing when you do that. You go, oh, wow, this is what God did for me. Prepare your testimony. Start evangelizing. Gather some people. Hey, I'm going to open my home, and you want to have a Bible study? We're going to study the scriptures together. Look, this can be done men, women. Man, women teaching women. Such a need. Gals gathering, moms gathering. I know so many of you do that. Make it purposeful. Married, single, doesn't matter. I was in student, so for you students, when I was in high school, the Lord was grabbing hold of my heart, and we started Bible studies at lunch break. 
we just got our Bibles out, and we, you know, and I probably taught them, who knows what I taught on, but I was eager. <laughs> and we got our Bibles out, we got a bunch of guys and gals, and we studied the Bible during our lunch break. Find that. It's okay, do that. We've got to start doing that, right? Where's this world going? If you're not doing that, who will in your high school, on your campus? B, the next one he says is the labor of love. He's thanking God for their labor of love, but notice I wrote love that labors. Isn't that fascinating? Love that labors. See, believers are given a love that drives their labor. You have an incredible love. The Bible says that God poured out his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. <laughs> Just think about that phrase. God poured out his love into your heart. That should cause labor, right? I mean, sometimes you go, well, this is a labor of love. <laughs> well, I'm sorry it's a labor. <laughs> Yesterday we had a wedding here from a very sweet lady who came through some programs here, and young man. There was two ladies that came, Diane and Debbie here. And they've been working with a lot of our gals. And I just watched them yesterday. And I went home and I said, Lord, thank you for them. Labor of love. So many ways to serve the body of Christ. So many ways to serve people who don't know Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. He picks an interesting word. Other times he uses a term for labor, which is agonazo, and, and, and we understand that word. But here he picks a Greek word called kopos. And it means a laborious toil. It carries the idea of experiencing distress and trouble, even harassment while you labor. But the word focuses on the effort extended or expended in that. Expend yourself for Christ is the way. Go to heaven tired. <laughs> Wear yourself out for Jesus Christ. This is what he teaches. Second Corinthians, Paul uses this word all over the scriptures, all over these 13 epistles. Chapter 11, verse 27, I have been laboring, there's our word, and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and often without food and cold and exposure. In his second epistle to Thessalonians, verse 3, verse 8, he says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working day and night so we wouldn't be a burden to you. See, love that labors is gospel-driven. It's gospel-driven. It's not hard now to serve because the gospel's propelling you on. Paul is highlighting the spiritual effort of these believers. They're participating in the advancement of the spiritual kingdom of God. They're, they're, they're a part of it. He's encouraging them. He wrote to the Corinthians, he said, for the love of Christ compels us. I love that phrase. Some of the translations say controls us. The Greek word is a word that means holds it together. The love of God holds us together is the idea of that word. It holds all things together so you can trust him. Because he who died for you, you now get to live for him, verse 15 says. What a beautiful reminder. So Paul is extremely clear that these Thessalonian believers have a labor of love that is a genuine mark of salvation. Is there something you're laboring in love with right now? You're laboring through love to do. You're, you have a love that's labored in it. 
And maybe you say, you know, I'm really not, or maybe I should be. Pray, ask God to help you. God, where can I take the love of God that you poured out in my heart and I can labor in love for someone or something? Ask God, he'll help you with that. The third one is steadfast hope. You'll see that in verse three there. I call it the hope that is steadfast. Paul is full of thanksgiving for these Thessalonica believers whose hope is unshakable now. (laughs) It's patient because it's in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in themselves. Notice that. And this hope now has produced a glorious patient even in the midst of trouble. As you get into the second letter, verse 1, verse 4, he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the other churches for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecution and affliction which you endure. Man, Paul looked at these guys and said, you're kind of a trophy. We're telling everybody else how you guys are, have a hope, a steadfastness in Christ, even while suffering. I told somebody just this morning that I've been praying for him as he's going through some testings and trials, and I said, you're encouraging me. I'm watching you. I'm watching you suffer. Stay on it. I'm just right behind you. I'm not very far behind you. I might have to go through the same thing. You're you're encouraging me. And I think this is why Paul spoke this way. Characteristic of steadfast and patience was based in their hope in the Lord. Based in the one that would beat death. Look at verse 10. They were... They were steadfast in hope, wait to wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. They knew it. (laughs) They understood that there was a resurrected Jesus who beat death and was going to rescue them from wrath. Can you imagine that? I, I love that statement. You rescued us from the wrath to come. Listen, brothers and sisters, no matter how they want to paint it in in American circle churches, wrath's coming. And you are either going to be at the feet of Jesus worshiping or you're going to be on your knees being judged. That's, that's the way it's going to go down. And you're either, it's either going to be this, Lord, I thank you that you took my wrath for me because the wrath of God pours out on sin. The wages of sin is death. It had to go. So Christ took that death. God, Christ took that wrath. So you and I don't have to take it. But it's coming. And it should give us steadfast hope, shouldn't it? God's going to solve these things. I think I think Paul's energized. You can feel it in the passion of the language here that he sees their patience, their steadfastness under such heavy load. Their eyes have been fixed on the finish line now. I know it's I I know as we get older we're 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 more fixed on the finish line. I, I know it's hard. And I'm not saying it's wrong, young people. But boy, if you could get there faster than maybe we got there. Anticipate the coming of Christ. Be ready for him. Have the wicks trimmed and the lamps full of oil and ready to go. Oh, your life will be so much more full of joy. So as we look at this verse, we see this God-given faith that validates their works. Their love of God was demonstrated as they labored for him. Their hope for eternal life was expressed in their steadfast endurance because they had assurance that Jesus was coming. And you see, this is why Paul loves these faith, hope, and love, right? These are some of his favorite subjects that he teaches on. Have you lost hope in some area? Ask the Lord. Lord, would you instill in me a hope in you? I've got sidetracked. I've got onto other things. Will you put my hope back into you? He'll do that. He'll give you that hope. Finally, notice that the fruit of salvation at the end of verse 3 
is under the watchful and ever presence of God our Father. Notice it says in the end of the verse there, in the presence of our God and Father. Now certainly God is omniscient and he's certainly omnipresent. And those are characteristics that certainly apply to this text. But I believe what he's after here is immense of God, the immense of God. Now there's a word called eminence of God. That speaks of his anytime return, uh, the rapture of the church and so forth on all that, eminence return of the Christ. But this is immense of God. And when we think about the immense of God, you can look this up. It's a sweet statement. Many people write on this. Um, but basically what it tells us is that God is not detached from your life on this earth. He is particularly and extremely mindful of your faith that works, your love that labor, and your hope that is steadfast. He is interwined with your life. That's the immense of God. That's a characteristic of him that we don't always think about because the world talks, well, there's a higher power out there. <laughs> well, wait a minute. This power is, is my salvation. This is the one who knows me, everything about me. He knows every fiber about me. He knows every cell. He knows every thought before I think them. He's totally intertwined with my life. And he loves me. And he's cleansed me through his son. And so he has this incredible relationship with me. This is what he means here. He says all this, this working of faith and this labor of love and this steadfast hope is all being done in the presence of God. Oh, listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Listen to this verse. This lines right up with it. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love that you have shown towards his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. People lose hope because they quit serving their Savior. Oh, don't give up. Last thought here. Three, the redemptive foundation that motivated Paul's thankfulness and prayer. The redemptive foundation that motivated Paul's thankfulness and prayer. Look at verse four with me. Oh, this is stunning, isn't it? Knowing brethren beloved by God his choice of you first he starts with oida it's the word for knowing here it's not gnoskis in this point it's oida it's in a perfect that means that there's a certain time where God knew you in a salvific way but it's everlasting there's a starting point to your faith and there's everlastingness to it so it's in that perfect condition there but it carries the idea of being intimately acquainted with all your ways. <laughs> that sounds like Psalms 139, doesn't it? It has to do with standing in a close relationship with you, knowing you in that way. And Paul's knowing, I think it's a form of insurance, that their salvation was true because of a fruit witness that their faith worked, their love labored, and their hope was steadfast. And so he could say to them, brethren, beloved by God. And what a word there, Beloved. What a, what a tremendous term. I, I, we need to use it more around here. Beloved. And, and notice it's first by God. God beloved you. It's a special love determined by choice is the meaning of this Greek word. A matter of will and action by God. It too isn't a perfect but a passive. Meaning it was something done to us. He beloved me. I think that's why Paul is overwhelmed. Chief of sinners. <laughs> undeserving beloved of God. You have that view of yourself, right? That's what keeps us worshiping. And just let that sink in. 
special love determined by choice, a matter of will and action by an almighty, holy, perfect God. Think about that for a moment. Paul uses the word brethren here. He uses it 19 times in this one letter. 19 times he calls them brethren. And I think like the rest of believers, Paul saw himself as adopted, adopted into the eternal family of God forever. And so everyone there that had been adopted were him siblings. And so he says, brethren, just like we say here, hey, brother, sister, how you doing? We're in the family of God. The phrase, his choice of you is just, there's just really probably no better way to bring it from Greek to English than to just say election. I think that King, King James still has it as election in there. God elects. And listen, that's just a pure kindness of God. He, he doesn't have to do that. There's nothing in of us that he has, to, has, he has to choose us or take us out of the world and open our mind and flood truth, and he doesn't have to do that. It's just a pure kindness of God. And when you think about the doctors of grace, and, and as you study that, be careful because pretty soon your head will get too big. Focus on the kindness of God. It's just pure kind. And listen, though we, in this life, we may never fully understand the doctrines of grace and election of sinners to salvation. The best men I've ever read, they get to the end of their life and said, I don't know how he does it. But this is what it does. Three things I wrote down in my notes. It causes me to be terribly humbled. It captures my heart. And it drives me to worship. I don't understand how he does it, but he's God. He makes no mistakes, and only God can do this, right? But here's what it does. It brings me terribly humbled when I think about it. It captures my heart that he would love me, beloved me in such a way, and it causes me to worship him. But I want to just close with this. I think so often we focus on election from God's view, and we try to figure all those things out, and yes, there's lots of scriptures, and I, yeah, great, and it's worshipful and all that. But I want to just turn it around for just a moment. And I want to look at election from our view. I got a good example of it this week. I, Gina and I returned from our trip. And I came into the office, had some meetings. And first break I could get at lunch, I drove over to see my grandchildren. Becky and the kids were outside. And I drove up in the truck and opened the door and Brantley saw me. And I know Dave can appreciate this as well. And he runs over and he climbs up my truck and he looks into my face and he says, Papa. Oh. Man. And I thought, Lord, that's my view. I looked into his deep brown eyes. He was genuinely so excited to see his Papa. And I said, Lord, that's why I look at you. Keith Green, many years ago, wrote a song. As I drove home, I sang this. Keith Green said, oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. And when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. I don't understand everything about election. But here's what I do know. That God set his face on me. 
And I get to stare into his through the scriptures in the person of Christ. And every time I put my eyes on him and run to him and call him Abba Father, his grace abounds to me. Amen? Lord, we need to be people who pray in thanksgiving. We need to train those who run with us, our families, our mentorees, whoever it is, to be men of prayer full of thanksgiving. Remembering, constantly remembering the works of faith, faith that works, love that labors, steadfast hope. Lord, help us be those type of people. And Lord, we thank you by your sovereign grace we can look into your face through Jesus Christ and his word. And we can find unmeasurable grace there. Lord, before I finish this prayer, I pray for anybody in this room who has not looked into the face of God by seeing Jesus through the word. They're here, Lord. They're, they're not saved. They, they want some kind of relationship, but their faith is dead. They've tried works. They've tried all kinds of things, and it's all failed. So I pray, God, you would plunge faith into their life, and they would long to serve you. They would turn from dead idols to serve a living God. Lord, I pray you do that. And Lord, for the rest of us, it's very easy for us to get content in Christianity. This world is not getting better. I'm not sure the church is getting better in a whole. And so, Lord, help us be a church that clings to the word of God. Cause our faith to labor, to work, and our love to labor, and our hope to be steadfast, because, Jesus, you are coming. You promised. You cannot lie. You will return, and you will gather your children. And we have hope in that. Whether we're laying on our deathbed or we're a young teenager, we have hope in that. And so it will cause us, Lord, to run that way. Lord, now we want to remember your death, burial, and resurrection. May you use this as a motivation for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.